So we are in a series right now called The Gospel of John, The Life of Jesus, and we're just looking at what the life of Jesus was about. And today's uh, message is called The Rescuing King. And before I get into all that, I want to tell you a story about my life. Some of you may know I'm from Illinois, um, but my mid-20s I spent in northern Wisconsin. And in football terms, that's spending time in enemy territory, because I am a diehard Chicago Bears fan, and northern Wisconsin is like the deep heart of the Green Bay Packers, and we hate each other. Like that is, we are, we are just not on the same page. We have the oldest rivalry in, in the NFL. Um, we, don't, we don't play well together. So I was living up there. I was um, at the church we were going to. I was a volunteer youth worker, and uh, they had a, a conference in Green Bay. And so we went there for the weekend, and on one of these days, their afternoon, they had some free time, and so they could pick what they wanted to do. They could go to like a trampoline park. They could go to a museum. Another option was to go to Lambeau Field. And guess where my kids wanted to go? <laughs> Lambeau Field. So I was like, all right, I hate Lambeau Field with all my being. <laughs> Never been there, but I hate it. But I'm going to go anyway because my kids want to go, but I'm also going to be defiant about it. I'm going to wear my Bears t-shirt. It's not a game day or anything. Like, there's no reason for me to do that. But I'm going to do it anyway <laughs> to show them that I am awesome. And then uh, maybe, maybe if I pass by, like, the Super Bowl trophies, I'll try and spit on one when no one's looking, you know? <laughs> or maybe if I get down to the field, like, tear up some grass. I don't know. Just totally disrespect the place. That was my plan. So we're driving to Lambeau Field. And uh, we're driving through this neighborhood. And there's like a house here, and a house here, and then a house here, and a house here, and a house here, and then Lambeau Field, out of nowhere, in the middle of this neighborhood. And I thought, whoa, that's pretty cool, an NFL stadium right in the middle of an, I mean, I mean, look at that, that just doesn't belong. That, that's stupid, right? That's dumb. <laughs> you, you can't put an NFL stadium right there. It belongs in a city with roads and, and busy highways and stuff, right? So... Uh, that was pretty dumb. So then I <laughs> kept driving. Um, I was like, great, now I'm going to have to pay for parking because, you know, Chicago, you pay for parking everywhere. I assume it's the same at any NFL stadium. So I get there. I see the parking attendant, and I'm like, all right, how much do you want? And he was like, hey, welcome to Lambeau Field. How you doing? And I was like, how much do you want for your parking? And he's like, oh, it's not a game day. It's free today. Don't worry about it. And I'm just like, oh, well, aren't you smug about your free parking? <laughs> So I drove into the parking lot, um, found a really good spot right next to the doors. So all the kids get out, you know, and we're walking up to the doors, and I'm starting to look for places where people aren't looking. I can spit on the bricks or something, you know, and, and these, these two older men just like swing open these giant glass doors and like, hey, welcome to Lambeau Field. We're so glad you're here, and they hand me like this little uh, program of what's going on that day, all the things, all the tours I can take, all the things I can see. And at this point, I'm starting to kind of feel like I'm at church. Like someone greeted me in the parking lot. <laughs> These old men opened the door for me. They gave me a communicator. The next thing I'm expecting is like a little gift bag with a mug in it, maybe. <laughs> I didn't get that. But anyway, I, I'm like, do you not see that I'm the enemy here? Do you not see my t-shirt? Like, I don't belong here. I'm better than you. So why are you treating me this way? But they kept being nice to me. So then I walk into the stadium, and about 10 steps in front of me, um, and off to the left, there's like these giant men. And they were either lumberjacks from the 1920s, or they were Green Bay Packer players. And so I look at my little program here, 
and I see that there's a meet and greet with these Packer players. And there's not a huge line around them. It's just like two or three people hanging out with them. It's like a hangout. I'm like, what in the world? That's so cool. I mean, that's really dumb that they have Packer <laughs> players hanging out. They don't belong here. So I walk in, and I'm like, okay, now I'm a little bit embarrassed. Everybody's been treating me kindly. I don't want the Packer players to see me. I don't want to die today. So I kind of like, I'm just going to walk this way, maybe go to the bathroom and turn my shirt inside out. And I try and cover it up like this. I'm kind of walking by like, oh, hey. But they see me. They see my shirt. And they say, hey, you're a Bears fan. What are you doing here? Come on over here. Let me tell you about my favorite Bears game we played in. And I was like, oh, no. So we talk and we talk and we talk. And I felt like, we were, I, felt like I was talking to an old uncle at like some sort of big family dinner. He treated me with such kindness and like grace. And so this kept happening. Like all the people I met were so kind to me, even though I was like sporting my bear shirt. So I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything to them. Um, and so after a while, I left the stadium. And after a couple weeks, I hope no one's listening to the podcast from back home. <laughs> after a couple weeks, I actually considered becoming a Packers fan. I considered it for like a couple weeks. But no, I did not give in to that vile temptation. It was just a moment of weakness. I didn't do it. Um, but it was all because of these people and their kindness towards me, the way they ran their organization. Their kindness overcame my malicious heart. And so we're in church, so maybe you see where this is going. But I want to emphasize that like what I'm about to say is like so much greater and so much deeper about Jesus than my simple time at this stadium. And so here's the truth. Jesus came to overcome evil with love. That's what he came for. He came to overcome evil with love. And this is the theme all throughout the book of John. And it's at its pinnacle in his death and resurrection. That's when he takes us out of the darkness and into his light. It's when he takes us out of the jaws of certain death and into his life and freedom in his kingdom. He's a rescuing God. He's a savior king. But before I get too excited, I've got to back up a little bit. I've got to tell you why we even need a savior, why we need to be saved, why we need to be rescued. And, and what I'm about to say, we don't like really focus on in the vineyard, and I don't think we should, but I think it's important that we know it, why we need a rescuer. Um. So, first of all, Jesus, um, well, it's because we live in this universe with two kingdoms. We've got Satan's kingdom, and we've got God's kingdom. You in the vineyard hear about God's kingdom all the time, right? And as we should, that's what we focus on. But there is Satan's kingdom. There's an opposite of God's kingdom. And in that kingdom, Satan has been allowed authority. And it's not the ultimate authority, but it's authority nonetheless. Jesus himself uh, in, in John three times, just in John three times, he calls Satan the ruler of this world. And then there's other places where uh, Satan is said to possess power. And it's uh, like in Luke, um, it says that he possesses all the kingdoms of the world. Later, John in 1 John writes, the world is in the power of the evil one. And then Paul later describes him as the God of this world. Not, not a big G, just a little G, just the God of this world. And going back to these uh, verses in John where, he, where Satan is called the ruler of the world, that, that word ruler, it's a little bit generous um, for this, for the that the translation gives it. So the word is archon, and it's, it's real meaning it's like a governor or a prince. So it's, it's not ultimate authority 
over the entire world, but it's like he has dominion over, uh, well, one, one definition I read, it says a commander with authority or influence over people in a particular jur- jurisdiction. So Satan, not the supreme authority here, but authority nonetheless. He's been allowed authority and power in this world, and every decision that's made in darkness is in the kingdom of Satan. Every human atrocity that's committed or even thought about is Satan's hold and rule on our world. Every act of racism and sexism, every act of selfishness and greed, every sin that you and I choose to commit is the result of Satan's influence in this world and on our lives. And don't be fooled here. We're not victims. Sometimes we can look at all that and be like, oh, I'm just a victim. I'm in the, I'm been held by Satan. But we're not victims. You and I, we've chosen to turn our backs on God, right? Many times during our lives, we've said, God, I want to do things my way. I don't want to do things your way. We've put our selfish desires above God's. We've chosen to put our joy in material things instead of God's joy. We've chosen to trust in money instead of God's provision for us. We've chosen to put our faith in relationships first instead of God first. And we've chosen to put ourself, we've chosen darkness, we have chosen Satan's kingdom in our lives. Jesus says in John 3:19, God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. So we've chosen to belong to Satan's kingdom. That's on us. Our actions brought us to be citizens of of Satan's kingdom, and we no longer get to be a part of God's kingdom because of that. And so, and why should we be? We've turned our back on God time after time after time, and ultimately we've chosen death and separation from God, and we are stuck in our sin. Jesus says in John 8, 34, everyone that sins is a slave to sin. That is heavy stuff. That's not light and fluffy. That's not something that we can just explain away in our prosperity, feel-good gospel. That's heavy, and we have to deal with that. Jesus says that we belong to sin, period. And that is where the story of humanity ends. We're all doomed. There's no hope. Let's pray. Just kidding. No, that's not what it is at all, right? We have hope. We do have hope. This, This is all that book is. This is a hopeful book. This is a book full of, hey, you're going to be rescued. And then later, you are rescued. Spoiler alert. He's a rescuing king. He's brought us out of darkness and death. He's brought us to life and whole living. And our our only way out of this, this kingdom of darkness and death is to be rescued. We need a rescuer. And we have one in Jesus. You probably know John 3.16, or at least you've heard of it, I hope. Um, John 3.16 is a great verse. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What, what a beautiful verse, that God loves us so much that he gives his Son to come rescue us and die in our place so that we can have life. But you know what makes me a little bit sad? Is, is not this verse, but it's that this verse is the only part of John 3 that's quoted. 
Because the verse right after it is just as good. But I never hear it. I never see it on billboards that say, John 3.17. Like, I don't see that, right? But it's just as good. It's just as powerful. And I think it couples so well with John 3.16. We have to look at it. And it says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. It's the idea that we need saving. We are held captive. We're stuck in our sin. And as Jesus said, we are owned by it. We're owned by our sin. And our only hope is to be saved and be saved by Jesus. This word save is so rich and packed with meaning. The Greek word is sozo. And uh, it's, it's one of those words that's got like all these little definitions that make up one big powerful word. So we're going to have Friendsgiving today, right? And around Thanksgiving time, my mom often will make seven layer bars. You guys know what those are? It's like seven different things all piled up on each other to make one gooey little delicious bar. There's like, there's like nuts, and those are good by themselves, but it's okay. There's chocolate chips, and those are fine by themselves. And there's coconut, which I love. Those are fine by themselves. But when you put them all together, it makes us like such a delicious little treat. And that's what this word sozo is. It's a delicious little treat. So if you eat a seven-layer bar today, you think of the word sozo. I'll, I'll break it down for you. Um, so it's often used in the Bible, as we see here, as a deliverance. Like someone is in danger, and they need help, and they need to get to safety. So it's a deliverance out of danger, out of death, and into safety. Other ways it's used, this word sozo is a rescue. Like a person has no hope whatsoever. They have to be rescued and brought to life. That's their only option for survival. So there's the idea of rescue. There's um, another way it's used is like when the beggars, and usually the beggars would be, they wouldn't be able to work. So they might be blind, maybe they couldn't walk, maybe they didn't have arms, anything like that. They would cry out to Jesus and they would say, Sozo Jesus, Sozo, because they knew that if Jesus came over and touched them, they would be healed. So it's just also this word of healing. They would cry out, save us, Jesus, heal us, Jesus. It's this idea of restoration and restoring something that's broken, something that's not the way that it's supposed to be, and Jesus coming and making it the way that it's supposed to be. And it's, it's healed and restored. So we can go back to this verse, and we can read all these things into it. We can go back to John 3.17 and read, God sent his son to the world, not to judge the world, but to rescue the world, to heal the world, to restore the world, to deliver the world from the danger of Satan's kingdom to the safety, love, and life of Jesus' kingdom. I get this picture of us kind of like losing this battle, and we've got no hope, and then Jesus comes in, obliterates the enemy, and he's like, all right, let's go, let's get out of here. You know, like just that idea of utter other saving and we're just like awesome let's go right so it's that great idea of of safety and deliverance john 10 10 says i have come so that may they may have life and have it abundantly like this is a word abundantly that's like you have more life than you ever know what to do with it's this idea of living really well you have so much life you you just don't even know what to do with it all and that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. You know, for most of my life, if you would have asked me, hey, why did Jesus come? I would have said so fast, because I grew up in the church and this is what I was taught. I would say so fast, I would say, to die on the cross for my sins. 
That's what I knew. And while that's a fundamental, deep, beautiful truth that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it's not the whole picture. It's how Jesus rescued us. The the real truth is that Jesus came to save. He came to rescue. He came to give us life. He says it right there. I came so that they may have life and have it abundantly. He came to save, and he saves and rescues by taking our sin on himself, by dying on the cross and raising from the dead three days later. So now, when I'm asked this question, why Jesus came, I can confidently say that Jesus came to save, to rescue, to heal, and to deliver us from certain death into his life. I was watching a World War II documentary the other day, and um, so I'll just tell you about it. So the, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and right after they did that, their next mission was to take over the Philippines. In the Philippines, uh, they're uh, American territory, and so they saw that as valuable. It's kind of close to Japan, and they took it over relatively easily. Um, so the problem was that there's a lot of U.S. citizens there because it's U.S. territory. So they rounded up all these U.S. citizens, and they put them in prison camps. And this one prison camp was called Los Baños, which I looked it up, is not the bathrooms in Spanish, but it really just means the baths because it was close to some springs where people would take baths. Anyway, um, so they went to this prison camp called Los Baños, and it was notoriously bad. Um, It didn't start off that way, though. Um, Well, first of all, there was about 2,000 people that went to this camp. They were there for three years because they got captured like at the beginning of the war and didn't get released till near the end. So they're there for three years in this prison camp. Um, and it started off okay. They started off with three meals a day. They had a little bit of fruit. They had a little bit of meat. Everything was all right. I mean, you're in a prison camp, but, you know, food's there. But then the meat and the fruit went away, and then they were eating, like, this rice mush stuff. And those three meals turned into two meals. And then later, those two meals turned into one meal a day. And so they were just utterly hungry. One guy... He said, uh, at the beginning, we were picking all the bugs out of our rice mush, but towards the end, we just left them in for the protein. It wasn't a great place. And to make all that worse, there's uh, the man that was running the camp was just utterly evil. I won't go into like all the stuff that he did, all of his war crimes, but um, he murdered people for petty crimes. He tortured men on a regular basis. Uh, towards the end of those three years, he just stopped feeding them. Like, they had zero food except for what they could find on their own. So this one lady, uh, quite proudfully, actually, it's like this 85-year-old woman, and she's proudfully saying, talking about when she was in the camp when she was seven. She said, yeah, I learned how to skin a rat pretty early on in life, mm-hmm. which is just, I mean, she was proudful of it, but when you think about it, like a seven-year-old girl in that kind of place is awful. And so as the war went on, they could see that the fighting was, they could start to see the fighting on the horizon. They could see the bombs dropping, um, and they thought, all right, we're going to be rescued. It's going to be, it's going to be time for us to go. But month after month after month, the fighting didn't get any closer. They could still see the bombs. They could see the glow at night on the horizon of things on fire. And they started to think, man, are we ever going to get rescued? Like they've been there forever. And then... These planes flew right over their camp. And they're like, all right, planes. But the planes didn't drop any supplies. They didn't acknowledge their presence. And they thought, man, do they even know we're here? 
But they did. They did know they were there. Because a couple months earlier, um, these three men had escaped from the prison camp. And they went straight to General MacArthur. And they said, hey, here's detailed plans of the camp. So they had like where the barracks were, where the guards stayed, how many machine guns they had, how many guards were there. And so General MacArthur was like, great, now we can go rescue these people. We know exactly where they are. Their biggest problem, though, was that just a couple miles away was a force of Japanese troops, that 14,000 people. And they could be there in just a matter of a couple hours, or under two hours they could be there. So if they caught any wind that they were rescuing the camp, the Americans would have no chance to rescue them because it was behind enemy lines. Um, and so he came up with this plan. Uh, the 11th Airborne of the Army was the people that were going to go into it, and there was 1,000 of them. And General MacArthur, he, he went three different ways. They came by this inland lake. I'll show you this Amtrak is what it's called, an amphibious tractor. Um, so those things float. So they came in by the lake. I don't know how they float, but they do. Um, so they came in by this lake because the camp was near the lake. They came by air, obviously. They're the airborne, and these paratroopers came in. And then there are some people on the ground that teamed up with some Filipino guerrillas, and they, like, hung out right next to the camp for two days, and no one knew they were there. They were just waiting for the planes and the tanks to come. Um, and so they did it. They timed everything perfectly. They all came at the exact same time. They overwhelmed the camp because when they came, part of the information was that these soldiers, the Japanese soldiers, every day at 7 a.m. would get up and do exercises. So some of them didn't even have shirts on or shoes on. A lot of them didn't have their weapons with them. So they easily overcame these 70, um, there were 70 Japanese, and they easily liberated the camp. There was a little bit of a skirmish, but they won. They were free. People had these huge celebrations. They were so excited that after three years in a prison camp, after having no hope, they were finally free. There's a couple of stories. There's this one guy that was just like jumping up and down in hysterics and excitement. And they like couldn't get him to calm down until finally they told him, hey, we've been saved by the army. We're okay. We're okay. And he's like, yeah, all right. And then he found out it was the army and not the Marines. He was a little bit disappointed. There's probably a spiritual lesson in there. I'll let you guys find it. Um, there's these other, one of my favorites is uh, there's these two teenage girls. They're both 18. And they heard the gunfire. They heard the tanks. They heard the planes. And they knew they were being rescued. So what did they do? ran to the bathroom, brushed their teeth, did their hair because they were about to see some cute military boys, right? <laughs> but my favorite story is a story about a son and his father. And the son tells the story. He's like 80 at this time, telling the story um, about his father. And they had nothing. They were in a prison camp, right? They had no possessions, next to nothing. They had the clothes on their backs that were pretty much rags. And the son tells about his father. The father says, son... Never in my life have I felt so rich than I do right now. And this, this idea of saving and our gratitude, um, this is exactly what Jesus does for us. There's not much difference between this story of these people being rescued from a prison camp um, and what Jesus does for us and how he rescues us from certain death. In that prison camp, two people were dying a day of starvation. Two people a day. I didn't show you, but here's some people that are excited to be rescued. Um, and so it was just a matter of time before they died. They weren't getting food. They had 
They had nothing. And so they had to be saved. And, and this is Jesus' life for us. This is what Jesus' life was all about. This is what his mission was, to rescue. Everything he did and said was to rescue. Everything he preached, every action he took, every lesson he taught his disciples, every part of his being was about overcoming evil with love so that he could rescue us. Throughout Scripture, we see Jesus overcome evil with love when he heals the outcast of all their diseases. Jesus overcomes evil with love when he shows compassion to the most hated man in the town, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus overcomes evil with love when he has dinner with sinners like prostitutes. Jesus overcomes evil with love when he raises his friend from the dead, from the dead back into life. Jesus overcomes evil with dead when he saves the daughter of an enemy Roman soldier from death. Jesus overcomes evil with love when he steps in front of a blood-hungry mob ready to murder a woman for little reason. Murder a woman for nothing, and he steps in front of that and says no. Jesus overcomes evil with love when he took every one of our sins on himself, took all the evil on himself, and died for us in our place. Jesus overcomes evil with love when three days later, he overcomes death. He raises from the dead. He conquers death with and for us so that we can be with him. And then Jesus overcomes evil with love when he offers us the same spirit that he has, the Holy Spirit, so that we can go do the same thing. And now we, we get to overcome evil with love as we go out and we do things that we see Jesus doing. We get to be a part of that rescue mission. We are invited to live that life of rescue, just like Jesus did. I didn't tell you the full story of the prison camp. Um, when the soldiers got there, remember how I told you there's 14,000 soldiers that could be there real soon? The soldiers knew that, the people didn't. And so as soon as the soldiers got there, they said, you are not safe. We have to go. We've got to get out of this prison camp. There are soldiers just over the ridge. And there's two types of people. The minority of the camp, they just jumped in the tanks and said, all right, let's go. The majority of the camp did not. They said, oh, thank you, soldiers, for saving us. Thank you so much. But listen, we've got some things we need to pack up. We've got some possessions we want to take with us. And so we're going to go get those. You guys hang out here, and we'll come back when we're ready, okay? And so they went back into their tents, into their huts, and they started packing things up. I mean, these are things they've had in prison for three years. There's not much worth to these things. But they had value to them, and so they went back, and, and they just started packing up. So the soldiers are like, this is not working. This is like 1,200 people are back there trying to pack up their belongings, and there could be enemy troops coming over. So what they did is they got their flamethrowers and they just torched the entire camp. So there's nothing left. It forced the people out of there. There's probably a spiritual lesson in that too. I'll let you decide on that one. Um, but I feel like sometimes we, oh, everybody did get back safely. Every one of the people got back safely. There was a few people um, that died in a diversionary force. Like they tricked the 14,000 troops over here into thinking they were being attacked. Um, some people did die rescuing them. But every one of the citizens was safe. But I feel like sometimes we do the same thing with Jesus. Like we are rescued and we are free. God has rescued us from every evil in this world. 
And all we have to do is hop in his truck and say, let's go. I'm ready to follow. But a lot of times we say, actually, Jesus, thank you so much for saving me. I'm so glad that you saved me, but I've got some stuff I need to do in my prison camp still. And so I'll follow you into life and happiness and and good later, okay? And then we go off and we do our own thing for a while, right? We kind of avoid the life that Jesus gives us. Jesus gives us life now. He gives us healing now. He gives us restoration now. Those people needed healing badly. And all they had to do was get in the truck and go to camp. And then after they get healed up, after they get restored, Jesus Jesus, he invites us on this rescue mission. He says, now it's your turn. I'm going to go with you, and we're going to go rescue others. Jesus started this rescue process 2,000 years ago. And it's not done yet. It'll, it'll finish as soon as he comes back the second time. Um, he'll get rid of all of the evil that Satan's kingdom has. And he'll completely take over with his kingdom. But right now, we live in a two-kingdom universe where there's Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom, and we need to be representative of, representatives of God's kingdom. I've got two practical tips for you. Um, and they're pretty basic. And, and you're probably in one of these two spots, and, and the first one is just to tell God that you accept his rescue. Maybe you didn't even know that there was a rescue effort happening. Maybe you're just worn down you're tired of seeing other people be rescued, um, and you just have lost hope like some of those prisoners. You just lost hope in rescue. And it's time to just tell God, I accept your rescue and follow him into life. And that's it. it. It's really that simple, accepting God's rescue in your life and following him. Um, and the second one is follow your rescuer into healing in life. What happened? What would have happened if those people in the prison camp never would have followed the people back to safety, never would have followed the soldiers, their rescuers, back to safety. They would have certainly died there. We have to follow our Savior into safety. And when we do, when we do follow, then we get to be part of this life where we get to be part of the rescuing effort. We get to help others find that same kind of life and rescue that Jesus offers. And that's what he did for us. On Easter. That's what he did for us when he died and rose again, conquering death, taking our sins so that we can live with him, not when we die, but starting right now. The kingdom of God invades earth now. As we close today, I just want to read you something from the end of John as he's, he's wrapping up his book um, from John 20 30, and I've added some things to it. But these things have have been said so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the rescuing King, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life and have that life abundantly by the power of the name of Jesus. Amen.